0: What do you hear when you listen to this? Actually, maybe a better question is to ask, what are you listening for? I'm only asking because I had to ask myself this very question when I was recording this soundscape. I was hiking through Mount Gosford, a mountain in the southeast of my home province of Quebec. All this silence brought me to a dead halt in the middle of my walk. But as I kept walking, I kept thinking about something. This sudden lack of sound exposed something for me. See, sound is real, but the way we talk about it and the way we listen are not a given. We sort of made up those conventions. The real reason I was sound recording while hiking was to see how much I could learn about the ecosystem by exploring the sounds it made. So I was a little disappointed when I walked into this still and silent soundscape. If my environment is as silent as this, is this even a soundscape? These are the questions that keep me up, and answering them isn't going to be easy because some fields of research hinge on more specific definitions of soundscape. Parsing words and sounds will be as difficult as seeing the forest from the trees here at Mount Gosford. Learning about ecosystems and so-called natural environments is what the field of soundscape ecology or ecoacoustics are all about. And in a certain way, that's what this podcast is all about. But determining how soundscapes are recorded and how they contribute to our knowledge of ecosystems leads us down a long winding road. This is a podcast concerned with learning about the environment from sounds, in general. The truth is, whether it's speech, soundscapes, noise, interference, whatever, there's a lot of information stored in any stray sound wave. doesn't always seem like it, but the constant cycle of life, activities, interactions, environments, They always leave a sonic footprint. But above all, this is a podcast that will investigate methods and processes involved in how we can learn about the environment through its different sonic footprints. It's a deep dive into how we learn from... ...soundscapes. But the problem is, what is a soundscape? This is environments. And the Researcher Sound Guy. This is the first episode of a limited series, and to get the ball rolling, I ask, what is a soundscape? So where do we even start? My best guess for starting to understand what a soundscape is, is to look at what other people have written and recorded about this subject. And once I dug through the annals of sound scholarship from the last 50 years or so, I ended up here, at the beginning Five, of four, our story. Three, two,
1: one, zero, all engine running. Lift off. we have a lift off.
0: It's 1969 and there's a lot of sonic activity going on. We're here because there's a sort of buzzword bubbling up in some academic circles. It's hard to trace an origin to terms and concepts. In fact, it's almost impossible to say, this starts now. We're here in 1969 because it's a point of convergence. It's here when the idea of a soundscape starts to get some serious academic traction. In this year, the term pops up frequently. We see Michael Southworth use it in his article, The Sonic Environment of Cities, as a means of describing the invasion of non-visual sensations on the quality of city life. In city development and environmental studies, the idea of soundscape starts to become an important touchstone for how city life is affected by sensory qualities beyond the structural and the visual. But learning from sound in the context of the city leads us to a figure that will reoccur throughout this series. His name is R. Murray Schaefer.
1: When we first began to do that soundscape research, it was in Canada, and most people didn't really know what we were trying to do. I mean, they laughed at us and said it was ridiculous. Um, Now, of course, I don't think anyone is laughing. The word soundscape is used in uh, the language, and people think they understand what it means.
0: Working originally Uh, out of Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, Canada, Schaefer's name has become almost synonymous with the term soundscape. In 1969, he wrote about his intention for soundscapes to direct the ears of the listener toward the new soundscape of contemporary life, to acquaint them with a vocabulary of sounds they might expect to hear both inside and outside the Concert Hall. Kind of... Schaefer explains in this candid YouTube interview.
1: Well, um, it uh, Soundscape does have an artistic quality to it because I guess when the first people that were using it, uh, starting with myself, I, uh, they were artists. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so it became associated with art, you know, and with music, uh, with composition, with things like that, rather than being associated with other kinds of activities, um, you know, as I said, like cleaning up the environment. It could have, had it been invented and used by people in the environmental movement, it would have had a different connotation, of
0: course. Okay, so textually, 1969 shows us that the term soundscape is being talked about more and more. But its entrance into a more popular discourse still doesn't really tell us what it means. So maybe we should just ask Schaefer. Soundscape
1: is any collection of sounds, almost like a a painting is a collection of visual attractions. Um, I think when you listen carefully to the soundscape, it becomes quite miraculous when you listen carefully and, uh, and marvel.
0: Okay, so now we have one general definition of soundscape to work with. Maybe it isn't the one definition, but it's a good starting point. In fact, we could even say that this definition and the rest of Schaeffer's work innovated the field of what's called acoustic ecology, a way of studying sound as a relationship between humans and the environment propelled by Schaefer's research project, the World Soundscape Project. Also around 1969, at the start of the World Soundscape Project, Schaefer was increasingly interested in two things. First... As a composer, he was deeply influenced by environmental sounds and how they could be used to enhance his own musical compositions. That picks up on earlier practices by composers of musique concrète, like Pierre Schaeffer. And avant-garde compositions by artists like John Cage. The material of music is sound and silence. Integrating these
1: is composing I have nothing to say and I am saying it
0: but for this discursive history of the soundscape that we're unpacking here the second thing Schaefer was interested in is particularly important. Schaefer's idea of soundscape is informed by describing the relationship between sound and place as sound scholar A Y Kelman puts it. specifically Schaefer wanted to know the extent of harsh city noises on life within the city and search for an ecologically balanced soundscape. For him, listening unlocked an ability to discern what sounds could benefit us and which ones could harm us.
1: So we do have ears to listen to the environment and uh, that's beginning to happen and that's going to affect, I think, uh, the behavior of a lot of people. Um, And uh, so uh, I, I have great hope for the future that we're going to rediscover the acoustic environment in which we live, and we're going to celebrate it, and we're going to save
0: it. In his short article called Audio Culture, Readings in Modern Music, Schaefer writes about a concept that's popped up across his long career, especially his famous 1977 book, The Tuning of the World. This concept relates to two distinct camps that soundscapes can be categorized by known as Hi fi or lo fi soundscapes? And not that kind of lo fi. To Schaefer, hi fi soundscapes are categorized by a lack of noisy, overlapping drones of sound. They are sparser, wider, closer associated with pre industrial times, the countryside, and fresh open air. Traditionally, Schaefer would call this a hi fi soundscape. Now, on the other hand, a lo-fi soundscape is harsher, denser, and filled with packs and competing frequencies. And for Schaefer, these are closer to the sounds associated with cities, traffic, and transit, stuff like that. You can get an idea of what I'm talking about right now. So both these so-called hi-fi and lo-fi examples sound very different, but they still sit comfortably under the category we're calling soundscape, so far understood as a collection of environmental sounds. So the trick about this distinction is that it points to Schaeffer's own opinions over which sounds matter and which do not. Sound scholar A.Y. Kelman mentions this in his 2010 article Rethinking the Soundscape, saying Schaeffer's definition of a soundscape is lined with ideological and ecological messages about which sounds matter and which do not. So other than the nature good and city bad discourse that's a little bit implied in this definition, Schaefer introduces a bit of a hierarchy as to which sounds are wanted and which ones aren't. 1969 comes up again here because it's the year Schaefer founded the World Soundscape Project.
1: I mean, they laughed at us and said it was ridiculous.
0: As a collective research project comprising mostly of composers, sound scholars, and recordists from Simon Fraser University, including Barry Truax, Hildegard Westerkamp, Howard Bloomfield, Peter Hughes, and Bruce Davis, the team aimed to explore the environmental sounds of Vancouver and all the lo-fi and hi-fi soundscapes within it. Goals of their research were to reacquaint residents of the city with their dynamic soundscape and the detrimental effects of noise pollution. All this to say, soundscapes, still conceptualized as a collection of localized sounds, were becoming an alternative but serious site for analyzing environmental effects. But that's not the end of the story. Not even close. In fact, we're only just beginning. All this talk about Schaeffer's contributions to defining soundscape is really useful in some ways, but what I didn't really mention is how it's damaging in a lot of other ways. In fact, in later episodes, we'll see how those definitions inhibited some forms of listening and recording. Sometimes Schaeffer's assessments were downright racist and elitist in some explicit and disturbing ways. Like in 1961, when Schaeffer wrote about Inuit throat singing, saying, and let me stress, this is a direct quote, quote, Eskimos are such an astonishingly unmusical race, end quote. Yeah, I know. And in future episodes, I'll look closer at some of these responses to the toxic sides of Schaeffer's definition of soundscape. So as you can already tell, the legacy of the World Soundscape Project is a little more complicated. With the soundscape recordings and compositions that came out of it, the definition of soundscape only got muddier. The World Soundscape Project provided us with recordings from recordists and artists like Hildegard Vesterkamp and Barry Truax. They reimagined soundscapes into challenging creative works, all rooted in the recordings of environmental sounds. In fact, their inclusion in this story is really, really important. Here's Barry Trax talking about his background and the central role of soundscapes within it.
1: Well, the whole area is being called sound studies. Uh, For me personally, of course, uh, I'm a composer of uh, music and technology, what's called electroacoustic music and soundscape composition. So it's absolutely central. Uh, But it's also central to everybody's life. We're in sound in the soundscape 24-7, and yet we don't pay attention to it, and only recently has it become to be actually studied. So that's a kind of pioneering and groundbreaking work that we can do and have been doing at SFU for a long time.
0: Truax wrote about soundscapes in a way that really stuck with me. In his article Soundscape Studies and Introduction to the World Soundscape Project, he focuses on the soundscape as the relationship of human and the sonic environments of every kind. Elsewhere in the same article, he argues that a soundscape cannot be divorced from those responsible for it, since it isn't merely a physical reality, but a mental one as well. But a mental one as well. In that case, do soundscapes really exist as just a collection of sounds in a space? Or is this all just a matter of individual perception? It's pretty common in most academic sound studies for scholars to stress the importance of position, but we'll look at that in more detail in future episodes. But anyway, the idea of position really shines through in some creative works from the World Soundscape Project. After all, we're only ever hearing the city or forest or beach or whatever soundscape from the perspective of whoever recorded it. ...and their specific situation. Just take a listen to Hildegard Vesterkamp's Beneath the Forest Floor. I know, it's kind of hard to tell what you're hearing, right? But this is the Carmana Valley in British Columbia. Not really as it is, if we can say that. Instead... This 1992 piece is a soundscape that suggests and manipulates space to represent Vesterkamp's own specific interpretation of the space. What about Truax's piece called Island? Or even my own recordings. Do any of these really sound like they're in the same genre? They all really sound different. The only thing in common is that we're hearing someone's recorded position
1: or manipulation of that position
0: in a certain space. So I brought up the name Hildegard Vesterkamp a few times already. And as another member of the World Soundscape Project, her work continues to challenge the idea of soundscape that we've so far been working with. Vesterkamp was a big advocate for soundwalking. What is soundwalking?
1: The kind of listening that you learn on soundwalks teaches you a sensitivity towards how you personally perceive things and how you react to them. So it gets you into a much deeper complexity of listening.
0: A soundwalk doesn't always have to involve recording. It's super meditative just because it forces the soundwalker to simply be with their environment and listen to how it changes and how they move through the space. By introducing this walking part into listening, we're really grounded in the acoustic environment. We're not meant to just record and collect sounds, but to be with them in our own subjectivities. Try it sometime, it's really lovely. So let me repeat that. The idea of Soundscape, because this is really important, the idea of Soundscape is not so much about an inherent sound to a place, but it's about how it's perceived by either those recording it, Me, you, wherever you are in that space. That is a soundscape. So the big takeaway or one idea that's really going to last throughout the rest of this series is that maybe a person's position within a space is more indicative of what the soundscape is rather than thinking about the space holistically. You can hear this exploration of space happening in Hildegard Westerkamp's Talking Rain in this performance which was recorded in 2016. You can also listen for it in her famous Kitts Beach Soundwalk too as we zero in on certain areas of the beach all following Westerkamp's creative motion through this space.
1: The tiny clicking sounds that you hear are the meeting of the water and the barnacles. It trickles and clicks and sucks and... The city is roaring around these tiny sounds, but it's not masking them. I could shock you or fool you by saying that the soundscape is this loud. But it is more like this.
0: So after all this, where are we at? If I return to my initial question of what is a soundscape, I have some good information to work with. But is there an answer? Well, maybe the answer is that there are multiple answers. We have Schaefer's hierarchy of wanted and unwanted sounds. We have Truax's personal connection to the sonic environment. And we have Westerkamp's exploration of subjective place within a soundscape. And all of them are great, great answers. But these multiple discursive strands related to what a soundscape is matter because they change the way we listen and change the way we understand the environment around us. So if we follow just one of these ideas of what a soundscape is alone, it will probably affect the way we record the world's sound. The funny thing is that there is also no one way to record audio, especially if it involves capturing environmental sounds. So learning from sound, as I vaguely mentioned before, seems like a straightforward process. You open your ears You hit record on a device or an iPhone, whatever, and you enjoy the incoming soundscape. And this is generally how I thought about listening to the world's sound around me for a long time. But then suddenly, two years ago, I heard a TED Talk. And like most TED Talks, it was life-changing. But this presentation was by a composer ecologist who used sound as a way of learning about ecosystems and their changing dynamics. His name is Bernie Krause. And what he said stuck with me.
1: Temperate and tropical rainforests each produce a vibrant animal orchestra that instantaneous and organized expression of insects, reptiles, amphibians, birds, and mammals. And every soundscape that springs from a wild habitat generates its own unique signature, one that contains incredible amounts of information. And it's some of that information I want to share with you today.
0: So if we're going to learn about natural soundscapes, we need to know how the idea of soundscape is understood. And hopefully, this first part of the story gave a little bit more clarity on the situation. When it comes to understanding nature through sound, these ideas, these definitions, these perspectives are going to become crucial. And best of all, they're only the tip of the iceberg. Is made in collaboration with Concordia University's Communications Department. And this episode was written, produced, and partially scored by myself, Lou Raskin. Special thanks to Owen Chapman. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.